The CFP board has specifically stated that it wants the CFP mark to be a requirement for anyone who practices financial planning. What is your opinion? So I, I usually hug up all the time. So maybe I'll I'll let that, let the other guys go first. And I'll try to I'll try to be uh, under control today. <laughs> okay. No, you're fine. I I guess it depends. We could go in order of the the cubes depending on how we want to Brady bunch this thing. But uh, uh, I guess I'll start. So yeah, I guess one of the things that I do disagree with because I don't think that the CFP board should be seeking uh, like governmental regulatory approval. I, I honestly think we should be our own thing. Um, and we should be our own organization of ethics and competency testing, uh, a fraternal Hippocratic organization, uh, for kind of lack of better words. Uh, we should be kind of concerned with our own fraternity of, of beings, and then we should, you know, kick people out as necessary and then use our marks to be kind of that, that gold standard for competency and ethics. Um, I don't, I don't believe that the government has the ability to do that because they really don't have the incentive structure to do that. Um, so that's kind of my opinion. So that's one of the places where I would I would disagree, where partnering with regulatory agencies to be the de facto is kind of more just a cronyistic play uh, that I wouldn't agree with personally. Yeah, I don't agree with uh, the CFP board becoming any type of regulator whatsoever over financial advisors, financial planners, whatever you want to call us in the advice space. So I think the bottom line is they haven't proven themselves, certainly recently, but over the years that they have the ability to do that in any impartial way. Uh, so that's my short version of, no, I don't think they should be involved. So um, in answering that question, I would say that the, the standard response from the CFP board in my um, reading their press releases and their commentary over the years is that they say that they don't want to be a regulator either, um, that they are, um, they're often critical of the regulatory agencies themselves. And um, what they say instead is that all they're asking for is for this for the CFP mark to be a requirement for anyone who practices financial planning. Now, if you think about that for a minute, what that really means is if they require anyone who is a financial planner right now, that was would be anyone who is um, all financial planners right now have to be uh, registered with the SEC. So if you made it that anyone who uses the term financial planner or holds themselves out as, as a financial planner has to have the CFP mark, that gives the CFP board everything they want. It makes them the de facto regulator. It would eliminate basically competition from all other competing designations. And it would mean that no one can practice financial planning without getting the CFP mark. It makes them the de facto regulator without having to deal with all the uh, other issues uh, uh, involved in being a regulatory agency and allows them to continue to do what they've been doing, which is to piggyback on the SEC's regulatory standards. So like every CFP right now who gives advice regarding securities has to have, has to provide SEC form ADV, is regulated by the SEC and FINRA if they're, if they're dual registered. So basically what the CFP's end game is to, is to be the de facto regulator, not the de jure regulator, and, um, and make that re requirement. It's kind of sneaky, but that's the way it's always been. And it's their stated objective is to make that a requirement for all financial planners. Well, and to, to respond to that, if I may, um, I, I guess one of the places that I'd like to start with that, that clarification is that I believe that, that John's right in, in that very critical of, of the, the regulatory agencies and their ability to really, you know, <clears throat> regulate this space. But I would say that the, probably the clarification or the misunderstanding may be around the trademark itself. 
right? And so does the, the CFP board want to be the de facto regulator or do they want a clarification around the trademark themselves so that people who go around calling themselves financial planners don't actually represent uh, the board or its standards or ethical standards or competency testing standards. And so therefore asking for clarification around that trademark itself and the use of that trademark or the ability for people to call themselves by X trademark, um, it, it, I think is kind of what, what more they're leaning towards than trying to replace the SEC with their organization. And I think that's probably a little bit more of a fair um, analysis of it. And, um, and, 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 I don't want to call it editorializing, but uh, but that saying, hey, well, you're you're in in kind, but not like trying to replace the SEC. I think is a little bit more of a uh, a, a little bit unfair to what the I think the CFP board is trying to accomplish. I don't know. I think that they've already watered the mark down. They don't enforce a lot of stuff against the mark. In fact, they ran their ads just recently, the beginning of this year. Uh, that looks like they were produced in 1970, and they're calling really kind of the CFP confusing it with confident forever plan. So there's a lot of confusion already on their part. So I'm not sure that they're trying to enforce the mark, even though that might be what they're trying to do. Yeah, well, I think what they're trying to do is say, if you want to call yourself a financial planner, very specifically this niche where we provide comprehensive planning, we look at things holistically, and we're not bro we're not brokering products specifically as a designation of our role, that may be kind of a sub side thing of our role. But uh, it's not the primary purpose of our role. And then if you want to call yourself that, you should have to go through our our trade, our our organizational process, right, in order to be able to use that trademark and then describe yourself that. And I think part of that is trying to avoid confusion, which is there's tons of confusion when it comes to titles and and uh, in our in our industry. What's a financial advisor, consultant, uh, planner, etc. All those things are kind of used interchangeably and uh, add to the confusion as far as competence and, and ethical testing. So um, I think that's a majority of, of what they're trying to accomplish. And I think that's a that's a good thing to try and add some clarity to uh, to the consumer. It'd be nice if they run the show, we could ask them. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and again, I don't represent the CFP board. I'm just a, a happy citizen of the, the, the CFP board um, doing my best to present the arguments the best that I can. Um, and, I, and I would, I don't know. I also teach CFP courses as well uh, for the College of Financial Planning. So um, I kind of get some of their educational material as, as time goes on. But as far as, you know, the leadership in the CFP board, I, I would probably be safe to say that that's kind of a little bit more what they're trying to accomplish. But you're right. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to ask them personally. I, I actually take um, it's just a I think sort of the opposite position, which I guess is why we're both on the panel, uh, Robert. <laughs> but um, I actually think it's the CFP board that's actually guilty of fostering consumer confusion. Um, yeah. The advertisements that they produce that says that anyone can call themselves a CFP, um, it, it's, um, it's baffling to me because actually the only people who can really uh, or he did, so he doesn't say that he can tell, tell himself if he, anyone can uh, say that they're a financial planner. And that's actually not true. I mean, it's actually the term financial planner is specifically regulated by the SEC. SEC interpretive release 1092, the applicability of the Advisors Act to financial planners clearly states that. The confusion is with the CFP. CFP, uh, the CFP board allows insurance agents to use the mark and call themselves financial planners. 
um, but operate outside the regulatory reach of the SEC. And that's a problem. I mean, basically, there's the CFP board and lately the Financial Planning Association, the FPA, has made a big deal about wanting to regulate the term financial planner. They say anyone can call themselves a planner. They can't. The only people who are actually getting away with it are the CFPs or insurance agents who aren't securities registered. That's, 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 that's where the confusion is coming from. Um, at the same time, I also think the CFP board does a, dissatisfac- does a disservice to consumers by fostering regulatory consumers, uh, regulatory confusion with ads like the one that um, CFP general counsel, Leo Radzewski, I think I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but he has a, a, a video he produced that says um, the CFP stands for a higher standard, the highest regulatory standard. And in it, there's a pyramid that puts the CFP board at the top of the regulatory platform. It says in many cases, we're a higher standard than the regulatory agencies. That's confusing to the consumers. And it's actually just not true. I mean, there is, you know, the, the, the we can go over that, but it's just, they're the ones fostering cons- consumer confusion, um, not the regulators themselves. Yeah, I agree with that 100%, JR. I think, I mean, a lot of their, their actions, the ads that they put out, uh, the fact that they don't, uh, again, police their own their own mark, uh, they don't police their own members. I mean, there's a lot of confusion that they just bring on themselves. Do you want to play the ad or go through the deck at all? Yeah, Sarah, whatever you want to do. Uh, yeah, well, there are a few other questions, and then we'll go sure. through the deck. Assuming we all agree that financial planning does not yet meet the standard for being considered a profession, what do you believe is required in order for that to happen? Um, I, I, I can go first if you want to do the go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. So, um, yeah, one of the, the um, uh, I had an interesting discussion a couple of years ago with Martin Say, who was the president of the FPA at that time. And he had read some of my commentaries and just wanted to have a, a civil debate. And he was great. And one of the things he said was, I see you're obviously you're often critical about the CFP board and and about regulating the, the financial uh, planning profession. He said, well, what do you ha- offer as an alternative solution? And, and because the current regulatory, I, I would agree, financial planning is not a profession. So how do you advance to uh, to a profession? And what I suggested at the time was that instead of giving the CFP de facto or de jure um, monopolistic control over the industry that we should do that, that ideally in a perfect world, we would carve out a separate regulatory agency, much like FINRA does for the brokerage industry from the, as, you know, it, it serves under the SEC, it was created by the SEC, do the same thing with comprehensive financial planning. I do believe it should be different, regulated differently from portfolio management, which is the typical de- definition of the registered investment advisor, um, but that it shouldn't be the CFP board that is controlling the regulatory environment for financial planners. That it, it, it actually does deserve to be its own separate self-regulatory agency, not unlike what the CPA community has in the AICPA or the uh, ABA for the Bar Association. I think if you want to get it closer to a standard, it, it does need to be regulated separately. So um, that was my people have been critical for me for saying you don't have an alternative solution. I, I actually think that that is the appropriate solution that um, eventually breaking it off, just not giving CFP board control over regulation. I think that uh, here's the thing, and I will give credit to you, John, that I don't think that you need a solution in order to be able to point out a problem. Um, I think it's disingenuous when people do that. So I won't, I won't attempt to do that to you right now. Well, in my opening statement, um, 
the, the main thing was is just trying to understand where you're coming from. Like, I think the CFP board should be better. Okay, well, in what way and how would you implement that if that's the argument? But if you're saying the CFP board has a problem, it's X, Y, and Z, you don't necessarily have to have a solution in order to be able to present that as a problem. I think that's disingenuous type of argumentation. But seeing that you do kind of have a, a, a solution, I do want to take the chance to kind of argue towards that solution. Uh, because if we look at the SEC's effective effectivacy or efficacy, um, I don't think it's great. And so I don't think creating a subset of the SEC to regulate specifically financial planning as a profession would provide the solution that we all want. And in, in general, I think it would probably be worse and that you would probably have more bad actors. One of the things that I did, if we it, maybe we want to address this later, but I, I did want to ask you that I think I asked you privately in a, in a, in a message is that of the, the, the broker check um, disclosures that exist that uh, did not match what the CFP board is trying to, um, or it, it, sorry, the disclosures from BrokerCheck that the SEC has on file that aren't being reflected in what the CFP board is reporting, are they still practicing? Because if that is the case, if they're still practicing, then technically the SEC is also not doing the job that you would want the CFP to do. Does that make sense? That that kind of question makes sense. So, so if you want to, yeah, as I'll just so um, it's a valid point. So um, and I'll and I'll, I'll send you if I get your email address. I just haven't gotten to it yet, but I'll send you the, the list that I have of literally hundreds of CFPs who are still practicing who have many many disclosure events. Um, we definitely could, and I I, I agree. When you look at a, a practicing CFP who has 15, 20 major disclosure events on their record, and and this not just little stuff, just like. Lots of inappropriate recommendations, but all kinds of bad stuff. Um, and when you see that they're on, on there, I, you know, it's a fair question to say at some point, at what point does FINRA, and because these FINRA is actually regulating, these are all dual registered uh, advisors. At what point does FINRA say, you know, enough is enough. You've got too many disclosures on your, on your record. Uh, you, you maybe need to find another profession. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I mean, it's, it, there are, and, and, and going part of, I, I do research, not just on, on this topic, but on advisor ethics and, and regulation of the profession anyway. It's tricky to do that because you'll actually see some instances where, like the worst one I saw, I'm looking at Hawaii um, uh, disclosure events. There are, there are advisors in Hawaii who have five disclosure remarks on their record for settlements of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you're like, how are these people practicing? And then you look at it and dig a little bit deeper and you say, oh, these were all related to auction rate securities and the brokerage firms threw them under the bus. You know, the auction rate securities were, it, it, they were the advisors were as much the victims as their clients were. And the brokerage firm said, oh, it was all inappropriate behavior. So they're all disclosures. So it's very difficult to do that. It's kind of a case by case thing. But I would say, um, you know, when you see how many and just how awful some of these disclosures are for both CFPs and non-CFPs who are still practicing, um, that... Uh, yeah, the, there should be more. It should be easier to get some of these people out of the business. At the same time, it's hard to be critical of the SEC because the CFP board isn't even making an effort to find these people. Tom Sporkin once said, oh, there was so much effort and time involved in getting the name and going and going the, doing the investigations that the CFP board simply couldn't do it all. I'm like, I got the list with a couple thousand bucks and just from a screen scraping firm in two weeks. You know, it's not hard to find these people. So I say my point is that I don't think the CFP board does anything in terms of enforcement. They made a big deal earlier this year in um, 
uh, Tom Sporkin was spearheaded. They they announced that they had had uh, investigated 40 bad apples and 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 expelled 20 of them from the industry. When you look at the list, half of those people had already left the industry. I mean, it was just a, it was just a show. It was you know and uh, and Sporkin. That's when Sporkin said, "Yeah, we can't go investigate all these people." Like, you want the list, Tom? I'll give it to you. I ha- I have it. You want to see who the bad actors are? I can show it to you. It's not hard to find. So. Um, I, I think it's fair to be critical of the regulators for, for not doing more to get bad ap- apples out of the profession, but I don't think the CFP board does anything. Right. And, and picking up on that, Jay, I mean, I think part of the issue too is like with this, the, the CFP board, I mean, they first of all have a financial interest in doing nothing. But the other thing is, again, this is not scientific, certainly not to the, the level that you've done research so far, but just this morning, I just went to broker check and I went to the CFP board. And I mean, as a simple exercise, non-scientific at all, I just went to find an advisor, national search, put in the name of a company of a, a top national wirehouse in there, looked at the first four that came up. By the way, there's different order that come up every time. There's not the same four depending on search criteria. Looked at the top four, half of the top four, 50%, have major disclosure issues under broker check. I mean, one even had a disclosure issue of over a million dollar settlement that the, the broker dealer paid out on some commercial paper transaction. And, you know, it's just one of these things where it's like the, 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 the disclosures all across the board, but then the consumer, they go to the CFP board website, they look for a CFP. And then, you know, the first thing that come up is these terms and service uh, terms and conditions. And then if you actually read through these things, I mean, one of them says that we're not going to list any disciplinary info, excuse me, any disclosure information, unless the person has been disciplined publicly by the CFP board. So they can have all kinds of disclosures on broker check, but if nothing has been done by the CFP board, their disclosure section of their profile is actually blank. And then if you go on further to read their terms and conditions as a consumer to use, find an advisor, find a CFP, they talk about not all CFPs are actually included in the list. You can actually opt out of being on the list. So there's all kinds of problems with, I think, the CFP board and their conflicts of interest and, and disclosures and what their real motivations are. Um, I will say I do have to disagree a little bit with Scott on on that. I do think that you shouldn't just blast an advisor's name publicly without full investigation and disclosure, um, especially should, especially since uh, trust is 99.9% of, of our business. I, I mean, at the end of the day, one of the reasons that the CFP board is so successful is because that's what they're doing. They're trying to build build that trust, right? They're and not doing it. Whether they don't or not, but yeah, that's, that's 100% of our industry. So if when they're disciplining 40 people a year, they're not, they're not doing anything. Well, uh, I, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know if that's entirely true, right? So if an accusation comes up and you're just saying, oh, well, X person has an accusation. I mean- No, these were settlements. These were settled disclosures on there. They weren't just accusations. There was actually, there's the accusation. Sure, and the but you were, you were talking about their process. You were criticizing their process, right? Oh, so yeah. I don't think they're doing anything. Their process, I think you bring up an important point that, or at least you bring up an important controversial point that, you know, everyone receives, uh, you know, a, 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 a due, uh, what's the due process, right? Mm-hmm. So guilty or innocent until proven guilty. Just because an accusation comes up doesn't mean we should drive that, that 
advisor's name through the mud. And so I, I do agree with their process. I think that that should be internal. You shouldn't expose the advisor until there's more information. And now they're not doing a good job at that process, that everything's internal. It's in a dark room and therefore nobody receives any punishment whatsoever. I can understand that being the argument. But as far as the process, I do agree with that pro that due process process where we're just not going to drag an advisor's name through the mud without having better information. Well, well, that's okay. I have no issue with that. But the issue that I have is like when I just did, again, an unscientific look at the first four names that come up on the list, and then 50% of those have disclosure items under broker check. I mean, how is the CFP board even going through a process of due diligence, uh, you know, again, innocent to proving guilty you know, in, in this sense, when they have all kinds of disclosures, but at the same time, they're, they're, publicly reprimanding 40 people, 80 people, whatever the number is in a given year, out of the tens of thousands, whether they got 90,000 plus CFPs, it seems a little bit odd to me. Yeah, I would actually say that um, in terms of the due process, um, Robert, you don't actually get a disclosure mark on your, um, um, on your res registration from being accused of anything. Um, what the CFP, I always find it baffling, the CFP board says that they need to do due process themselves. The disclosure mark comes after after it's been concluded. So there's a settlement or uh, or a finding, and then it gets on your disclosure. Now there are also, and I can tell you, there's um, uh, there are certainly you, we can debate or what should be how expungement should work and what should be allowed to be a disclosure or not. There's one in Hawaii I felt horrible for this guy. He has a felony conviction, uh, not a, not a conviction, a, a felony on his record for he was accused of and tried of stealing tires out of, and it turned out it was just misidentification but the mark never went away um but he had got there he had he, he had been arrested and, and and it was i mean he clearly had done absolutely nothing wrong and it's still on his record um but uh but that had you know once you had once you've been arrested for a felony it shows up on your record you know there so but um yeah it doesn't i don't think it takes a great deal i, I think it's for the CFP board to say, okay, we don't think that the FINRA, the FINRA findings are legitimate. We need to do our own our discovery. Uh, really? I mean, it's pretty, I, I'm not sure that they need to do that, do they? Well, I, I would just argue that it, it is their mark, right? And we are trying to be yeah. separate. And yeah. when I invoke we, I, I, not that I represent the board, so I Sorry, <laughs> but I just want well, they to can enforce it. They can enforce it any way they want. Right. And there's nothing that is their right is the. However, the, what I yeah, what I will agree with you, though, is you could use uh, SEC disclosures as a baseline for investigation. If someone has disclosures, it's worth looking into. And if the argument is, well, we have kind of this baseline in which we could derive information from and then better have an investigatory process. Um, I, I can't argue that that would be incorrect to do. I think I think you're absolutely right when it comes to that, John. What I would say is that I do think it should be separate because um, the SEC is just not particularly good or what they're going to do is have situations like that where uh, someone's completely innocent, but they just got drugged through the justice system. Uh, they were found innocent through the justice system, but they still were arrested for a felony. And that's just that's just not fair. And so we do want to make sure that we try and find those circumstances where advisors were treated unfairly in the due process.
process. Yeah, yeah, but let me ask you a question. I mean, as far as that, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, who do you think the onus should be on? Should the onus be on the CFP board to police its own mark when they can gather this information from FINRA, SEC, state regulators, and then have you know people on staff that actually go through this and just make determinations based on their disciplinary guidelines of whether they're going to pursue anything, or just wait for the public to you know contact the CFP board and file some formal complaint? Uh, yes. So uh, yes is the quick answer. The, the more convoluted answer would be that we we should control internally. We're 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 a fraternity of ethics and competency testing that should uh, that should be different from the SEC. Now right. so we that, don't know that right now what what they're doing. Basically, we don't know what their process is. All we can, at least from my perspective, look from the outside and say, you know, forty, eighty disciplinary public actions that are taken just seems artificially low given what's actually disclosed on broker check for a lot of the folks that are holding the CFP mark and actually still practicing in some capacity out there. So it leads you to believe, you know, how much internal enforcement is actually going on, even just reviewing records, even if nothing publicly is happening. Yeah, I think it's fair to look at the SEC disclosures and be like, hey, maybe that maybe there should be more disciplinary action. I, I don't think that that's like an unfair analysis. Um, what I what I would say though, as far as the process and defending the process, um, yeah, we we should be external from the SEC as by virtue of what we stand for versus what they stand for. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh no, not at all. Um, as far as whether they're accomplishing that goal, that investigatory goal, or whether that number is too small, um, I, I I think that's a fair enough argument. That that I I don't know what the answer is to that, whether that is too small or whether it's just a reflection of the people who do usually get the mark usually are more passionate than people who aren't. Um, generally speaking, that's not conclusive, obviously. So I would probably say that disclosures among CFPs would probably generally be less than disclosures among just anyone who has their 65. That's that's actually a great a great thing because that's actually was was one of the interesting things that we were that we and other researchers actually have been trying to find out. Um, the and there, I would say, and that's and that's actually getting back to the problem I have with the CFP board is, you know, we can argue both that the SEC and CFP board aren't very good at enforcing, um, you know, uh, or enforcement efforts to get bad actors out of the profession. Um, what is different though is the CFP board says it's the highest standard and says that its people are more are thoroughly vetted and it basically tells the consumers you can trust us more than you can trust the regulators and that's fostering confusion and I think that's um, that's just not cool you know that's that, that's not that's that's not good for consumers and that's at the end of the day this should all be about putting the consumer's interest first um, the uh, had another point I was going to make and like Slip my mind again, but um, no worries. I, I would say that I don't think that it's entirely misleading for the CFP to say that. I I would say the SEC is is not great. They don't have a great track record of of helping the consumer, and so the CFP trying to distinguish itself as a higher standard, I think I think is completely accurate. Um, I mean, just to give you some examples that I gave in obviously uh, part one, but um, I mean in the two thousand eight financial crisis, one of the largest studies that was was done not largest study, sorry, one of the largest investigations that was done, I think it was even CNN that reported this, during the 2008 financial crisis, they found hundreds of thousands of hours of pornography on, on SEC executives' uh, work <laughs> computers. 
right? And I mean, it's not to say it's not, I'm not trying to clutch pearls or, or trying to be, you know, a conservative that says that porn is bad. But obviously, during the worst financial crisis that existed in human history, and we've just got the SEC that's really not interested. And the reality is, is they're just not incentivized to do so. The CFP board, whether you're saying they're they're accomplishing their goal or not, they at least have an incentive to uh, to their to their standard. They have an incentive. They you know they they have to have that um, consumer trust. Otherwise, that people just aren't going to buy into uh, the mark, and people aren't going to buy into that being a higher ethical standard. So there's a greater incentive for the CFP board to behave ethically and to prosecute those who aren't behaving ethically than there exists for the SEC. Actually, I would argue the opposite, that they have a yeah. disincentive to throw out bad apples because they pay the membership dues. You can convince the consumers through spending millions, basically $10 million a year on advertising, to convince the consumers. So actually, I would argue they have a disincentive to throw out their members. Um, the other thing, I just remember the thought I, I was trying to make, they're actually, um, we, I, we had actually tr sought in, in research to figure out who is more likely to have disclosure events financial planners who are CFPs or non-CFPs, um, securities registered, either hybrid brokerage or whatever. And interestingly, it's, you really can't make that assessment. They're, they're, um, what, we, the, what you can say is that, and then part of it is there's just all kinds of confusion about, there are all sorts of people who have securities licenses, but have nothing to do with our profession. They might be working for a hedge fund or an investment banking firm where they're required to get the licenses. And there's lots of CFPs who aren't practicing, who might be teaching. There's, you can't really tell the actual number of people to make an apples to apples, you know, and say, okay, 12% of CFPs have, have, um, have disclosures. Well, 13% or 15% of non-CFPs, there isn't actually, you can't, you can't put a number on it. You just can't. What you can say, however, of doing research in detail and gathering, gathering disclosure data on thousands and thousands of CFPs. I've done it in Hawaii and participated in studies um, that looked at Florida and, and broader studies. What you can say is that there's lots on both sides of the fence, that being a CFP doesn't necessarily make you any more ethical or any more less likely than a non-CFP. You can't, you know, Whatever the number is of which one has fewer or more, it's it, it's not clear. Um, what we can say is that in general, CFPs who are dual registered, hybrid registered, um, and also carry insurance licenses are more likely to have disclosures than pure non-CFPs like Andy Penko, who I think you interviewed as a great guy of a rising star in the financial planning industry, Sarah. Um, you know, guys, he's purely purely RIA, pure, no, he doesn't have any other, any other licenses. Right. People like that are less likely to have disclosures than people who are hybrid. Between hybrid advisors who are CFP and non-CFP, you can't tell. But the, the issue I have with the CFP board is don't go telling the public that your guys are, are better because there isn't evidence. To, there, there, is, there just isn't any conclusive evidence. Basically, people like me, multi-registered financial planners, um, compared to CFPs who are hybrid registered, that we're all have some likelihood of, of having disclosure events. You just can't say which one is better. And to, and to tell the public that that's the opposite of that, that CFPs are more ethical, less likely is a mistake. So you can't, it's not, it's confusing. Well, well, asserting that they are more ethical or asserting that it's a higher ethical standard, I guess is probably where the distinguishment needs to be made because you could, you can say we require our members to be a to hold a higher ethical standard that could be just factual but saying whether they are 
is is not factual because anybody can misuse anything, right? And I think that in part one, you had mentioned that there was specifically an advisor who got the CFP designation in order to do bad, right? And and you can kind of make that a, a disparaging argument for the mark, but I mean, in the context of other examples, like if somebody were to go out and buy a gun and did something bad with a gun, that doesn't necessarily make, make the gun manufacturer liable, right? Especially if they didn't know that was the intended purchase or the, the intended reason. Right. So holding the gun manufacturer liable for something that somebody did would be equally absurd as holding the CFP board liable for something bad that something did. Now, the argument, the best argument that you do have is, hey, it's not necessarily that this guy tried to shadow his evil behavior behind the halo effect of the CFP. Um, it's that they're not enforcing. They're not going after the people who are using the, the halo effect and getting rid of those bad apples. That's a much better argument than saying, hey, people are going to get this in order to have that halo effect and do bad things because you really can't police that uh, without some sort of minority report type of technology. You can't, you can't completely police that. And I wouldn't even say that that's the SEC's responsibility. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that that's, that's a place where the SEC, but I would say that the SEC is not good at taking those bad apples uh, and, and getting rid of them. And that 90% of the time, they really have no incentive to do so. What they want to do is they want settlements. And so they don't provide justice when they are a regulatory agency, right? So the regulatory agency that's supposed to provide justice and what they're doing is they're settling. And when they do settle, they make it extremely difficult for clients to then go present a civil case. The CFP board, because it separates that themselves and they don't have to settle, they can easily just disbar someone and say, hey, you're no longer a part of us then that client can go take a civil case. Whereas the SEC, they settle, they get the cash, that civil case becomes nearly impossible for the client. So in terms of what is better, what is a better alternative, I still have to argue in that regard. See if, um, I think it, I branched off a little bit off topic, but I, that's kind of just where my brain took me. So I apologize that it kind of went, went on a tangent, but anyhow. Well, so this, yeah. is, this is a little bit, um, veering away from what you're talking about, but I think for it to be more of a profession, when people enter, they have to go a more professional route, which would mean keeping those younger advisors out of those wirehouse and brokerage training programs, which I do feel is going to direct them into practicing in ways that makes them more likely to be involved with a conflict of interest. That's um about that whole thing. Oh, I I don't necessarily disagree with that. Um I think that one of the challenging things is that sales kind of has a dirty dirty name to it, right? Oh, you, well you're you're not really a financial planner, you're a financial salesperson. Now, granted, I I don't think that that's true. I think that we do need salespeople to to sell things. I think sales is just the expression of value, the expression and the communication of value, right? And so we do kind of need those salespeople because we can't really do everything. Um, we a financial planner can't be the everything for everyone. They are going to have to broker some of those services. Mm -hmm. But I will say that it does kind of it does add confusion, right? So if you're working for a wirehouse and that's your place, you're going to think sales, 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 and when you finally go through the the, the board's education requirements and you start ethics, 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 right. you start to, you start to feel like, 
oh, well, maybe I did kind of treat every client as if this product was its entire solution when that's not really how I should be looking at um, at uh, at financial planning. So I definitely I definitely don't disagree that some of these wirehouses do present serious problems, especially for for people young coming in the industry. Or also that there's no salary when people first start out. And I know that and it, you are essentially buying into entrepreneurship. And so anytime you do that, there's a hustle component to it and you don't want to take that away. But at the same time, there is a very long sales cycle for this type of service. So what it does is it effectively puts people in a position that they're more likely to be desperate or feel desperate. And I think that's that's a, that's a huge problem. So I, I, I kind of trace it back to how people get into the industry. I think that's that has to be changed in order for it to be more of a profession. Well, one of the things that, um, Robert, you mentioned last week that I, I totally agree with um, is that a problem with financial planning being regulated as it is today by the SEC is that there is no educational requirement to become a financial planner. The series 65 is not a difficult exam or 66. Um, it, it basically is designed to familiarize you with the rules, right? With the rules of the, the Advisors Act um, and, and, this, and the difference between the state and federal regulation and all that. But um, the, and, and I absolutely have no argument whatsoever with the CFP prep program being um, valid for someone to be for for allowing someone to use the term financial planner where we disagree i think is that and i've had this disagreement with in other forums with other um people taking the cfp board side but um is that that just shouldn't be the only educational requirement there should be multiple paths to people to financial planning uh, uh to the profession to, for it to be a real profession there has to be real educational standards and to do that, I have no problem with the CFP prep program being it, but I also think that there should be an allowance for anyone who actually has a real academic background. So a degree in economics, a degree in finance, a degree in, in accounting, all of those things I think would be sufficient academic training for someone to enter the financial planning profession, um, if, if it is a true profession. But as it is right now, Robert's right, there is no educational standard for someone to become a financial planner, although many people I like I said, there's not any evidence to suggest that financial planners like me are any less trained or less uh, uh, academically qualified. And we have to disclose our, our academic backgrounds and, and designations in our ADVs. Um, so it's not clear that there's, that, there's a, that there's a major problem there. But as it is, it's a fact. You can't be a profession without some academic standard or some education standard. And right now, there is none. Yeah. Well, one, of the, one of the questions that I kind of have goes back to the original part of how do you make in a profession. And it, to me, it stems back to kind of the whole thing of I mean, what is a financial planner? What is a financial advisor? All the acronyms that are thrown out there, there's only a couple, I mean, wealth advisor, investment advisor, investment counselor, I mean, you can go, the list goes on and on and on. And it's at the end of the day, I mean, if you're going to have an educational requirement, if you're going to have a regulatory requirement, whatever it's going to be, whoever's going to regulate anything has to really kind of define what is a financial planner? What is a financial advisor? What is an investment advisor? So I think that's a lot of the confusion because people out there that are calling themselves financial planners today, people that are calling themselves financial advisors, they're doing the same stuff. You know, they're involved in managing accounts, they're involved in providing financial planning to people, financial guidance, financial advice, there's advice only, there's fee only. I mean, it's very confusing for the consumer. And so we're sitting here talking about kind of how do you make it 
into a profession, which I think is a long ways to go. But to me, the, the bedrock area is how do you even define these terms and should all these terms even be used? I mean, we refer to a doctor as a doctor and then you can start getting into, you know, is this a, a specialist? Is this a PCP doctor? And then you can start getting into to other acronyms. But right now it's the wild west out there and people call themselves whatever you want. You go to, you know, people's websites, you know, some have services listed, some don't. The ones that do have them listed, you know, they compare, they kind of cross over, but they're calling themselves different things. So it's confusing to the public. And uh, to that, I would say part of that is just because our industry is relatively new compared to medicine, right? I mean, medicine centuries, years old, financial planning really, I mean, you could, you could say post Great Depression, but even that's kind of a little bit of a stretch. And as far as financial planning itself, separate from the brokerage industry um, or the insurance industry, uh, it's, it, it's very new. So I think part of that will come with time. Um, Part of it's regular. You got the SEC, you got state regulators, you got you know self-governing regulatory bodies like Finra, and and then you know the CFP board that wants to, to to basically be a de facto regulator without being a regulator at some point. I mean, so when you have all these different parties, how can you have any consistency? I mean, you could ask any client, any consumer, they're not going to know whether they should go to the SEC website, the state websites, FINRA, CFP, to, to look up anything on their advisor. And a good thing is some of these kind of cross over, but then it takes you to other websites and it's very confusing, you know, to the to the general public. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't uh, disagree with that. As far as it becoming a professional over the long run, I, I would say some of that's going to come with time and some of that is going to be uh, and some of that's going to be, you know, having these conversations and, and debating the clarifications and the need for, for those clarifications. Yeah, there have been um, a couple of interesting forums that I've sat in on where they've just, uh, there's been a description or a framework for what actually makes a profession. And to its credit or to its own agenda, perhaps, but the CFP board has sort of followed that model in creating itself um, structuring itself to be treated as a true profession, modeling itself primarily, I think, off the legal industry um, or legal profession. Um, and there are certain components. So you need a standard of conduct and code of ethics. Um, you need some mechanism for enforcement. Um, and um, there are about seven or eight different things that, that, that are required to be a profession. Um, and, and so the CFP board has tried to position itself to take that role and it's, there's nothing wrong with that that's just that that so th if you look at their structure it is sort of the model you've got executive uh, leadership there's all kinds of things that you have to have they have it what is overlooked sometimes is that the sec in terms of regulating investment advisors including financial planners has a similar structure there is a code of conduct there is a uh, ethics there is enforcement there are you know they're all they, they have those frameworks in place um but it, the problem is it is lumped financial planning is lumped together with portfolio management uh, i do think in terms of financial planning to get to a true profession i won't say that it's impossible but there is so much bureaucracy and regulatory hoops to jump through um that maybe it's maybe it gets accomplished through lobbying which the cfp board has tried to do a number of times but i, I think it's hard for it to get there um what makes financial planning and different in important just investment advisors in general different um, from the legal profession, from the medical profession, is that it has to be, there has to be a regulatory component because securities are involved. Securities require regulation. You're dealing with other people's money and handling their money. That requires regulation. That doesn't exist for medical profession, for 
accounting profession for a legal profession. There isn't actually a product per se involved ever. Um, so that's fundamentally different and it makes it harder for us to become a profession than it is, I think, for those uh, self-governing bodies. Well, I guess the only caveat to medicine is when you get into pharmaceuticals. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Next question. Well, we've kind of covered this already. What is the CFP board's role in enforcement and do you believe it is effective? What do you think it should be in the future? Um, I guess I'll start with that one. So so as I've kind of stated a couple of times, uh, uh, a fraternity of ethics and competency testing um, and really shouldn't, shouldn't be involved in any of the type of governmental regu regulatory agencies like the SEC and shouldn't attempt to be a de facto. I also believe that there should be competing agencies as well that attempt to, to take that place because in addition to obviously market forces that will hopefully drive down prices, there will also exist competition for uh, for for competency testing, right? So just to, kind of to give two examples, if there's the the CE board and then the American College's Chartered Financial Consultant, if those are two competing designations, then there's a lot more incentive for them to try and build trust and to try and outcompete with each other, and that's just that's just better for the consumer and for uh, for advisors as well because it also bring down prices. You can't charge a thousand dollars a year to an advisor to have the CFP mark if the Chartered Financial Consultant holds just as much weight and only cost $500 a year, right? So there's kind of there's kind of that that I that I hope for in the future. Um, yeah, but their role in enforcement should just be letting people be a part of the CFP board or not be a part of the CFP board and, and taking them out. And that's the only role that I believe that we should hold. Yeah, so um, I, 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 my opinion is um, that the CFP board is duplicitous in its um, the way it portrays enforcement. On the one hand, the CFP board says it really doesn't have the time or the resources to go and investigate all of its 92,000 members. And I said, it's actually not that hard if you use the disclosure stuff as a, as a baseline, but I'm from the SEC and FINRA. But um, at the same time, they're spending $10 million a year on advertising, promoting their brand. If, if you've got $10 million to spend to promote your brand, don't you have $10 million to protect consumer interests on the other side. Um, I, I think in terms of enforcement, it would make, like, I, I would have more, will it, more of a willingness to accept the CFP board's role and more, I guess, I would be less hostile toward them if they actually did make a concerted effort to weed out the bad apples. I mean, it's, like I said, it's easy to find them. They're, they're out there, they're active, they're people who have no blemishes on their CFP verification website, but they have, they have all kinds of major disclosure and, and it's not hard to sort them out, but there is zero impetus to do that. Um, like I said, there, a lot of show is, is made of, about investigating 40 people, half of whom had already left the industry. Um, and then you say, I yeah, don't have the time to time and resources to investigate the thousands of others. The, the, to me, they, they've always just been disingenuous about enforcement and, um, critical about the agencies, but do nothing in terms of protecting consumers who, you know, their, their, um, their uh, scope is only limited to their members. They don't have to, to uh, it's the SEC can police everyone else too, but the, the, it's not that hard to police your own membership. And that should be, if you're going to be a profession, you really should be able to have um, greater control over that and, and to protect the consumers um, from bad apples within your ranks. So my view. 
Yeah, I think my view is very similar to JR's. I think at the end of the day, we kind of already kind of touched on a lot of the same stuff, which is, you know, they don't do a, a, a good job at enforcement. The data is out there. It's it's easy to get just kind of echoing the same things that JR just mentioned. And I think that they can do a better job of, of doing it. And uh, I don't think they have the incentive to do it. And also, I don't think at the end of the day that, you know, the, the board in, in some respects are not even really kind of created for the members. It's a, you know, it's a nonprofit, but at the same time, I mean, just look up how their board is made up. The board is selected by the board. <laughs> so they have a nominating committee. You submit an application if, if you want to be on their board, but the members are not voting on the board of directors. It's governing the, the nonprofit entity. So in some instances, it is kind of operating on its own and, and does what it wants to do. And the incentive is to, you know, grow the executive branch. We talked about compensation and things on the, the first, uh, you know, uh, part of this webinar uh, podcast. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it comes down to incentives. And, you know, if the incentives are to grow membership, then the incentive is not to police membership. And I think that, you know, they got to decide what they want to do as an organization going forward. And there's just a lot of confusion with what they put out publicly, whether it's from ad advertising and the $10 million budget JR mentioned and, and trying to promote uh, their brand versus also trying to police the, the mark that they're saying in another press release of, as, as JR mentioned, 40 people, give or take, that half of which left the industry already. That's not a huge accomplishment of policing your members. So yeah, that that's just the, the big overall problem, I think, is just the disclosure and the fact that, you know, again, people can choose not even to, to be listed on the website. I mean, there should be standards for you know, all members have to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, no, not if they want to do it or not want to do it and, and so on and so forth. So I think that there's just a lot of problems with the, the board and if it wants to operate the way it wants to operate, that's fine, but don't hold yourselves out there to be the gold standard. All right. Well, I will say not to beat a dead horse, but if they ever do have a beard requirement where you can't have a beard and be on the CFP board, I will be complaining with you all as well. <laughs> All right, so JR, do you want to go over your slides if I just share them? Um, yeah, sure. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, I didn't, it wasn't presented, I didn't create just, it was, I basically created, these are my notes for the last discussion. So I just, there were just things there, there to come up. But the, the first one is the Wall Street Journal front page article from 2018, um, in which Jason Dwag and Andrea Fuller um, showed that there were more than 6,000 CFPs who had um, disclosure events on their FINRA broker check records that were um, not reported to the CFP board and were not, they were showing up as clean on the verification site. Um, as a response to that, um, the CFP board admitted that it was um, a mistake to require self-disclosure of, of the standards, of disclosure events to the board, which is still a requirement. Um, and that uh, they were now going to put FINRA broker check on an SEC IPD on the CFP verification website so the consumers could look for themselves. Um, so there's the CFP verification site and then there's FINRA broker check. Now, I think very few people ever actually go to the CFP board. Consumers would even go to the CFP board website to find that, but that, that was their solution to that. Um, rather than weed out the bad apples, just make it so that consumers could find it on the CFP board website and, um, and look up the the, um, their their CFP on the, on the uh, CFP board website. So that was that article. That article was a big deal. Obviously, um, the CFP board reacted to that in a number of ways. Spent a lot of money and, and tried to basically. I think 
to CFP board's credit, they are the masters of spin. Actually, I think they spun it into the messaging afterwards was this is a wake up call to us. Now we're very serious about enforcement and we are now where we said we would be, which is we are all about ethics all the time. And so <laughs> it was, but that was that, but that was that article. That's the cover page. That was the, that was the, um, that, that. So the, the next slide what, that uh, comes up there. Okay. So this is um, a list I have. There are literally hundreds of, but this is just part of doing um, research for papers that we're writing on not just CFP board issues, but on advisor misconduct in general. And this is just, this particular list is um, a, just a, a snippet of um, people who are registered as, who have the CFP designation and whether they have CFP disciplinary history or not, um, bankruptcy history or not, um, and their registration type. And this, see in the column you see, it says DR, that's dual registered. These are all hybrid, hybrid CFPs. They hold brokerage and probably, and 70% of them hold insurance licenses as well. Um, and you can see where it says, and there's CFP status, active, inactive, and the next set CFP discipline or no discipline. So like the first one up there, there the guy's name is, uh, let's see, a second one would be Cynthia. Cynthia has, uh, let's see, how many disclosure events next to her name? I agree with the first one. First one's Michael, I think. And I, yeah, I know who that guy is. Yeah, um, Michael, so Michael has 28. Yeah, he's got 28 disclosure events. He's active, actively marketing himself as a CFP. He has no, no discipline. He does have a bankruptcy filing, um, but 28 disclosure events in, is out there. So, um, and, and you go down the list, so you can see people who have their CFP board has disciplined some of them and some of them have, they have not. And they all have um, pretty, when you read through those disclosure histories, the ones who have, you know, 10 or more, most of those are pretty um, objectively speaking or subjectively speaking, uh, most of those look like they're people that I, I, I don't think you would want to have your money invested with them. So, um, uh, but like I said, there are hundreds and hundreds of people on that list. And that, that was the CFP list. There's also, we have lists of other people who are non-CFP, but it, it does, it, it, it raises awareness of two problems. One, Robert, what you said is, is that their enforcement needs to be better. It's, it's just, when you see that many disclosure events, you have to ask yourself, how is this person still out there handling people's money in the public? In public, the second question would be, how is the CFP board not looking at these people when they are out there too? So, um, like I said, you maybe you'll put there out on this list. I've, I've actually been through each of these people individually. Um, like I said, there are some people like the the auction rate securities issue. There are lots of people who look like bad apples, but they really got thrown under the bus for something that really wasn't they're doing. That that maybe there that should be different. But all the people on this list. I've looked at the individual ones. I think you would agree, Robert, that there are people out there who that you just you wouldn't want your money invested with them. So yeah, and I don't I don't disagree with you in that we can't. It's not like we can't use the SEC's disclosure information that's available to us right. in order to start our investigatory process. I'm, I don't disagree with that at all. But I do believe that our dis investigatory process does need to be separate, distinct, and different. Sure than yeah. what the SEC does, uh, as to avoid dragging an advisor's name through the mud when they just don't deserve it. Um, totally agree. But would you say, would you agree, agree with Tom Sporkin's comment that it's so exhaustive and time consuming to do the due diligence? I mean, honestly, when you look at those disclosure histories, you can say, oh, yeah, I think this guy might have gotten a bad break. Maybe let's investigate this further. Or, wow, this guy's had multiple settlements for hundreds of thousands of dollars for misrepresenting the sale of variable annuity contracts. Maybe we shouldn't have this person. In it. It does, it does, to me, it doesn't look like you need a three-week investigation for every person on that list. 
It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I, I no. I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I would. I would say a good portion of the budget should be should be put put towards this investigatory process. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Does anyone know? Uh, sorry, to clarify, I, I'm not agreeing with. Uh, with, with who you spoke to that said, who, who, who did you quote that said that? But oh, it was um, Tom Sporkin, who's the, Tom, who's the new yes. enforcement director. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, agree with Tom. Now, without obviously further looks into the budget yeah. and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I think you could probably make a pretty good argument that, hey, maybe we shouldn't spend so much on advertising and maybe we should spend a little bit more on enforcement so that our credibility doesn't go down. Uh, I think that's not necessarily what I would say I think that's more of a business argument than it would be a term of ethical argument, because on the other hand, I could have I could be missing information and they have tons of money that's allocated towards um, investigatory processes that I'm just not aware of. But I would just say from a business perspective, yeah, you should spend as much in the investigation process so that uh, the marks, you know, are credible, meet are credible. Yeah, yeah. But hold on, what I said was, do we know the average number of disclosures that financial advisors have? No. No, we don't know the average average number of disclosures. And I'm not even sure that's a, a meaningful number. Um, like, um, well, the, the only reason it would be meaningful is that you could, you, you could, I guess, derive from that, okay, well, if the average advisor has eight disclosures, anyone less than eight is probably more ethical than anyone more than eight. You could kind of do that. But then again, the problem is that disclosures are very subjective, right? So yeah. if someone has eight disclosures, but everything, every single disclosure is unwarranted, well, they end up in the average and it, it really it really doesn't make much of a significant difference. Actually, it's, it's funny you mentioned because I mean, this is part of the reason I'm involved in this research is that I actually find it to be completely fascinating. So like I, when you were talking about like, um, but just probably we're talking about um, should someone have a disclosure event if it was just a single infraction or for something my and I, I go back and forth on this issue myself is what 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 should be disclosed and what shouldn't be but like one of the advisors that I was looking at in Honolulu um, has five disclosure events but no settlements and they were all involving inappropriate sales of variable annuities over a span of four or five years now if there was no settlement and if it was just the the issue went away because they were aggressive in fighting back the the, the client who had who had raised it then you know he would never have anything on his on his record but those five collectively actually where there's smoke there's fire right they the firm simply refused to settle with it with five different people who, who had complaints but yeah i'm glad those disclosures are still on there and then like so you've got others where you feel bad for the person because it looked like it was just some honest mistake or or just or they got thrown in with a bunch of other people and it was just the other there are certainly instances of it but the disclosures itself i would say in looking at disclosure research it's very difficult for well i'll put it this way i've seen instances where totally ethical in my opinion totally ethical totally legit advisors have marks have a have a single disclosure event from just bad luck um being in the wrong place at the wrong time supervising somebody or or, or something like that and, and it's and 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 you feel badly for them in other cases you know the most common is one disclosure event and really in most cases there are i'm sure you guys all know them there are people who i wouldn't want i wouldn't trust with my money who i do, don't necessarily think are ethical who have no marks on the record it's hard to get a complaint it's hard to get a complaint that goes that far so it's by far and away the most common probably the average is closer to one or two disclosure events not eight or ten it's just hard to get a lot of disclosure events you have to do you have to get piss off a lot of people to get a lot of people complaining about you to get to that point so you've been in the business a long time 
Yeah, and the longer you've been in the business, and that's a, there was actually a research paper that I, I disagree. It's a famous paper, but I disagreed with the premise. Is well, the longer you are, the more likely you are to have disclosure events. No, it's the more likely you are to have. The longer you're around, the more people you interact with. If you've only been in the business for a year, of course you're not going to have any disclosure events. You haven't gotten you know far enough down the pipeline to have people complain about you yet. So um, you know, it's it's not that there's a correlation between time in the business and number of disclosure events as causality. It's just that's that's just the nature of the beast. If you're around long enough. You may have somebody who's angry at you and and makes it. Every, I mean, this this is baffling to me that just that there's a list with hundreds and hundreds of people on it with 40, 50, 30, 20 disclosure events. I mean, no, those aren't the, those aren't disclosure events. That's a, that's a scoring system all the way at the right. The, the yellow column is number of disclosure events behind us. Yeah, but, but, still, still, but still, OK, but Wait, still. those are big numbers. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Those are big numbers. But that's still big numbers. I mean, I like maybe I'm just naive, but I mean, I have certain like a handful of clients where I'm the CMO and then I have a podcast and every time someone comes on the podcast, I look at their ADV and I look at I, the FINRA and the IAPD, right? And I don't see that that commonly. It's, it's not. I mean, like I said, it's hard to get a complaint. I mean, I know lots of people. I worked in the wire. I've worked at you know large wirehouse firms with lots and lots of people working, lots of advisors. And there are a lot of people who are like, I, I, I wouldn't do business that way. And they have no disclosures on it. It's just, it's hard. It's hard to get a disclosure event. And you, but you can, but anyone can get one from bad luck. Well, yeah. I mean, there's one guy I know that used a fake ID in college. He yeah. got arrested Some, yeah. for it. And it's, it's ridiculous. Exactly. Exactly. Like, what is yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I saw one of, the, one of the criticisms that I have of the Wall Street Journal article is one of the very first ones they report is a guy who used a customer's login at their request, right? I mean, it's stupid, but at the same time, like if that's the very first example you have, I was kind of unimpressed with that being an example of, of advisor malconduct, right? So, I mean, that's, they, obviously they listed more eventually, but that was kind of the first one in the article that they listed. And I was like, you got like, that can't be your first example of, of advisor malconduct. So even though it's stupid, even though it is bad, like it is quote unquote, a, a form of fraud, right? Because you're logging in on behalf of somebody and placing trades in their name. Like I'm not trying to downplay that, but it's also not like Bernie Madoff is, is blushing in his jail cell right now. You know, uh, like that is one that should be on, that definitely is one that should be on the disclosure event though. Well, I don't disagree no, with no. you. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't disagree with you. I just don't think it's, I just don't think it's the, 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 the smoke and gun that the wall street journal place that, that is. Actually, that, um, that is. sure. Could you go down to the next slide? I'll show you that because for your reference, Robert, I, I didn't have anything to do with the develop. I I, I was sort of the no, I, I, inspiration not, of the paper. Of the, of the article, not necessarily. Yeah, I never saw, the, I never had their data. I never had their data. But this one, uh, is this the one? Uh, no, that's not the one. No, sorry, yeah, so this is so, your screenshot of someone yeah. who works at Royal Alliance Associate, Associates. It's yeah, funny that you... It's funny that you uh, that you redacted their name, but they still have their CRD, so I could literally just go look them up. <laughs> I'm just I'm not a snitch, so you can do that. I just don't. I that's I just you know I'm, I'm not going to shame somebody's name. You, 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 the, the, the CRD is public record. You can find it's just of like course, me. Of course, it's but, public record. I just thought it was funny. That's all. Yeah. No, no, it's, so, I understand. Yeah. So um, yeah, and that they 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 don't have any disciplinary um, history, but they have 28 disclosures. Yeah. So that's actually, I was, I, was, I was thinking I put a different side there, but they uh, I wrote an article in January of 2018, or in Financial Planning Magazine, highlighting an advisor who had uh, five disclosure events and was presenting himself as a big wig CFP. Said he had his own private jet. 
um, and to a client of mine. And um, and I I got um, and I I went and the client asked me to check him out. I'm like, okay, this guy has three settlements of over a hundred thousand dollars, a termination for cause, and a bankruptcy in the last twelve months. And he was totally clean on the CFP verification site. So yeah, this was it was just an anecdotal item, and I'd run into that two or two or three times in the, over the last few years in, in in other advisors. And so I got put in touch with Jason Zweig, and Jason. This is before they did the story. And he said, so do you think this is a pervasive problem in the industry? I said, I don't know. But anecdotally, I've run into enough guys. I'd say there are probably hundreds of guys like this who are promoting themselves as ethical and using the CFP designation to market themselves, but have are clean on the verification site. So he said, really, you think there are hundreds? I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. But it just I run into it enough that I think that there's prob- that's probably true. He said, well, I don't, I don't know if it's that high, but we're, we're looking at a study and we're going to do it. He called me back in April and said, you were totally wrong. There were not hundreds. There were thousands. And that's, that was the nature. That's how that story came, up, came about. Um, and you're right. Now, of some of those 6,000, there are people probably who, who sh- they're, they're minor. They're, you know, there are people on there who shouldn't, shouldn't have a disclosure event. And there is a problem, I think, and it's, it's being addressed. But expungement should be easier in cases like that, right, where, there, where um, you know, people are the disclosure event really isn't either their fault or is simply not serious enough to be on there. It certainly wouldn't harm the consumer by not having it on there. Um, in the case that you just mentioned, though, like if you're using, if you're logging on as another, as a client and you're using their passwords, that's a big no-no. That should, that's yeah. a disclosure event. <laughs> I, be, I didn't say it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. No, but you're right. It's not, it's not the same as 28. I was unimpressed with that being the very first example. Understood. Understood. Uh, now, 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 granted, that's kind of my, my, my criticism of the, the Wall Street Journal article itself. Um, and the other thing that I would say is my other criticism is I don't think they, they used enough of your material. They basically had your criticism, your picture, and that was it. And I was like, Oh yeah, he has, he has so much more to say. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I've, I've published, I've published a dozen papers on this subject and I mean, advisor perspectives has, has published a bunch of them. So it's, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I had nothing to do with the story. I never saw their data. Yeah. They didn't, I had to go out and get my own screen scraping data. So yeah. it, 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 they, they included me as one of the people they interviewed for it. And obviously I was instrumental in the beginning and helping them develop the story. But I think part of the other challenge too is, is like even if you have the data and even if the CFP board was inclined to actually use that data and um, go make folks go through their disciplinary process, I mean, if you look at their disciplinary process and also the disciplinary items that they actually look at, there's only there's, there's only a handful of items on that long, long document that you actually can be stripped of the mark. The rest is just, you know, again, you're going to be suspended for periods of time and this and that and so on. So it, it all gets back to, again, you can have tons of marks on there. They could go out and police it. But if you're not going to take the mark permanently away from people for very severe, you know, disclosure events, uh, then what's the use of doing it? I mean, these events could have happened five years ago. And if the, the punishment is we're going to not have you use the mark for a month or six months or a year, you know, okay, they're beyond that already. Five years have already passed. So, you know, that's part of the challenge too, is is that even if they were inclined to enforce it, how are they going to enforce it, I guess, in a fair way when things happen maybe very much historical, they weren't more recent events. And the SEC's got, that, that criticism applies to the SEC too. I mean, you look at that list and some, some people are fine and some people just got to protect the consumer at some point. You know, if you've got... 12 unrelated disciplinary events at some point in time, the consumer is, is 
would benefit from that person no longer being in the business. Well, I agree, Jay, 100%. I'm not arguing against yeah. that at all. I'm just saying, like, if they it's weren't even in the, the process and, and, yeah. and go through the, the thing, you know, th there's no real punishments that it even come down for a lot of these things that it's are- It's hard to get thrown out. It's hard to get thrown out of, exactly. of, the, CF, of the CFP membership, and it's hard to get thrown out of the SEC or FINRA. Yep. And, and I would say that the, the SEC, it, it, I would be more critical because the SEC is is an organization of justice, right? They should be prosecuting people. Should be protecting consumers. I, I don't I don't well, disagree. And, no, 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 no. Protecting consumers is kind of a given. But also, if there's significant fraud, there should be a prosecutory process because they are an agency of uh, the executive branch. So if you're an agency of the executive branch, you need to be prosecuting people and there needs to be time for some of these crimes. Not all of them, obviously, but that's oh. that's your role. And they just don't do that. Right. They settle. I remember reading a, a reading a study that they 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 settle 80, 80 to 90 percent of the time they, they settle. And then the problem with those settlements is that they that the client can't go uh, take it to civil court. Um, and, and try to get their money back or, or try and sue for liability. It's just that's not that's not actually the SEC. That's actually FINRA. When, and there is obviously a debate over whether mandatory yeah, FINRA is kind of a sub arm of the SEC because they're, they're right. But but they're, the but they're tasked so with enforcement. Kind of like, settlements are with FINRA, FINRA arbitration, not SEC really doesn't have anything to do with it. So, so arbit arbitration is, is for FINRA, but it, anything that goes that escalates to the SEC, the study was with SEC and FINRA arbitration settlements. Right. But Again, the SEC now technically FINRA. The, the reason it exists is to push things through arbitration so that uh, small, kind of less criminal cases supposedly have a quicker process. But um, actually, I don't think that's quite right. Um, well, FINRA FINRA exists because it's a self-regulatory board. It used to be the National Association Association of Securities Dealers, but it's now right. it's policing the brokerage industry. And I think, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the reason why arbitration is mandatory is that you have fear of frivolous litigation so right. that the easy. So when you have mandatory arbitration, in theory, it's supposed to be fair for the consumer and for the um, uh, and for the firm. But you don't have all the, the legal the legal costs and the, you know, the, the issues that you would have with that. That's why mandatory arbitration exists in a lot of industries. Um, and now and there is obviously a lot going on as to whether that should still apply to our industry or not. But I think that's what what the arbitration. I, I would say that. Because that's that's one of the significant issues. Now, not necessarily that arbitration is bad. I think ar arbitration a lot of times can be superior, obviously, because of uh, you know the, the, those types of litigatory processes. But um, but but no, I mean, at the end of the day, the SEC makes it really difficult for clients to be able to hold any advisor accountable for their wrongdoing. Um, so it's it's a challenge. Anywho. Okay, Jay. Our next slide. We left off kind of back here. We covered that, right? Yeah, we cover that. Yeah, I apologize. I've got five more minutes before I have to go. My okay. apologies. Now, this is just uh, so I'm writing a, a paper. Hopefully, I'll get it done sometime this year. But on just looking at um, this is data. I, I I paid a couple thousand dollars and got um, all the SEC FINRA data and as much of the CFP board data as I could um, for people living in Oahu, Honolulu County. It's a population of a million people. So the problem with the data is that it's small sample size. But what the what the paper is about, um, and this is like I said, it's not this isn't anything necessarily purely CFP oriented. It's actually 
it's fascinating to look at the demographics of financial advisor misconduct. And when I've read these, I've read a number of journal papers um, on the topic and everybody takes a big picture view. Everybody wants to say, you know, CFPs are less likely or more likely than non-CFPs, but it's much more interesting to go dig down into the data at a granular level, which is a small sample size like this allows you to do to drive future research. So like I said, this is where, when I was going to the data, I saw all these advisors who had jumped off the screen as having major, major disclosure events and major settlements, and they were all auction related security. It wasn't what you would think it would be, right? And then you see um, advisors who have, um, you know, misconduct, um, like the, the guy with the felony, the felony arrest that was nothing and that's on there too. So when you dig deep down, um, the, the message we were trying to say is you, you can use studies like this to drive further research to see what whether this problem is pervasive on a large larger level because the a lot of when you look at it, you know, and we have enough people here. So in this in this case, we we had um, the total population of why there was 195 disclosure events, um, 34 uh, were CFPs. 161 were non-CFPs, 17% um, of CFPs, 18% uh, had disclosure events um, versus 13.4% for the total population and 12% for the non-CFP. Um, I'm not, that, that isn't, that data is meaningless, okay? That doesn't mean that CFPs are more likely to have disclosure events than non-CFPs. That's not the point I'm making, but it is the sample size. So it might, it might actually be the reverse. You don't know. The sample size is simply too small. But when you go through and look at each of the individuals on there, if you look at each of the 34 CFPs with disclosure events, you can see what the misconduct was. In many cases, not surprisingly, you'll see that misconduct is tied to the, also the sale of insurance products. Um, and that's true for both CFP and non-CFP. So it, it helps drive further research if you understand by looking at small samples like this and looking at dual registered versus single registered. And, 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 and when you see what were the causes of misconduct, you kind of get a sense for how you might want to research that in the larger studies and how the larger, larger studies sort of mask some of that misconduct sometimes. So I, I just, like I said, I find the research fascinating and that's why I'm doing, doing it. And, and this is an example of what I'm working on now. It's looking at, I have all of the individual data for everyone in, in this area. I am where there's a million people. Um, now, if you were to do this in New York City, for example, you get totally different results because everything gets muddied up with hedge fund managers who are on there as registered. And you've got, you know, they're all, all, you can't really isolate the population uh, the way you can in a smaller study here. So by advocating for more small studies of small regions around the country like this and then collectively getting the data and, and getting drawing conclusions from that rather than you know, looking at just the national data or just the data from you know, a single state. And that's important work. Yeah, it's yeah, it is. I, I, there's it's nascent. There isn't really much research going on in that space at all. Yeah, we covered that. I think and this was the this was the famous uh, the first verse. I don't think they air it anymore, but uh, that was actually a very well done, very clever ad. But it, uh, uh, but uh, the messaging is what I objected to there. Yeah. And then these are I just know a uh, planner who looks just like the guy on the left. <laughs> I mean, he does, he does wear, you know, a polo, but he has dreads. He's a really cool dude. Yeah. I think that, that, that is a little uh, in bad taste, but. <laughs> yeah, and these are just some of the um, examples of the CFP board's um, public marketing. And I, like, so the, the one that bothers me the most these days is that um, I just, that the, the, and 
FBA is making a big deal about too is it says anyone can call themselves a financial planner. It's simply not true. And the and the and it's the CFP board that's fostering that confusion by allow by allowing insurance agents who are outside the reach of the CFP to market themselves as financial planners. That's where the problem is. Um, but the CFP board actively goes and recruits those people to get the membership. So um, that's that's saying that it's a regulatory problem. It's actually they're the ones creating the problem. The CFP board is. That's um, so I, I put that article in, or that little advertisement in there. Um, and then this is just this is just notes on um, on uh, um, yeah, just uh, the difference between um, material conflicts of interest, which is in this in uh, the standard of conduct for the CFP board versus the SEC's standard of conduct, which is material facts. Um, just subtle changes that make the CFP board standard of conduct um, more watered down than the than the SECs. But those we talked about in the last show. But that was the deck. These were these were my notes from the last from the um, first podcast that we did. So anyway, all right, guys. So everybody, thanks for listening, and please subscribe, rate, and review this show.